0: So I'm happy to announce that I have indeed been canceled. In case you were wondering from last week's episode where I was worried about <laughs> Top 88 dropping and what would happen. Yes, I have been canceled.
1: You have been canceled. All right. So tell, tell us what happened. How did this cancellation come about?
0: <laughs> so apparently, and like I know this. Uh, You know, in in like white supremacist circles, 88 is shorthand, like a sneaky way of saying, you know, Heil Hitler. Because H, H, H is like the eighth letter of the alphabet and they got to be sneaky about it. So they say 88. And then like 1488 is like the big one where you're like a super white supremacist and want people to know about it. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I was called out for a top 88 using the, the forbidden number. And that point aside, it's not even the top 88 anymore. It's the top 87 because the restaurant at Meadowood burned down. (laughs) So
1: it's a moot point. I did not expect your cancellation to come from uh, some Nazi-related stuff. But this is 2020, so I need to stop being surprised by these things, I guess.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm a Nazi and I don't even know it.
1: The more you know, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, that was actually, I did not predict that. That was very shocking. And I think that's how cancellations happen, right? Where you don't really expect it. It's this totally random thing. And then you're like, oh, okay, I guess my life is just (laughs) over now.
1: There you go. All right. Well, with that said, we are back and we're both here. So hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips
0: and i am solejo speaking from cancel jail
1: <laughs> on this on this episode we speak
2: with serena die our new boss yay this conversation's been going on for quite a while now with the award system people who had been uh, you know allegedly abusive within their kitchen, do these people still deserve awards and to that i say the answer is no we
1: cover what it's been like for her to come to san francisco from new york city during the pandemic
0: and we go over the myths she's busted about bay area food like avocado uh, Go-Gurts and and things on a plate, all those great things. (laughs) And then she talks about the great food she's gotten to eat so far. And I think the most interesting part, for me at least, is we get to talk about how the sausage of food writing is made. We get really into the nitty gritty of it all from the top 100 list to just what story she finds interesting and awards, that whole thing. So if you're curious at all about Serena Dye, our new editor, and just what sensibility she will bring to our work, definitely listen. So you're our boss. How exciting. (laughs) Technically, yeah. I still find it weird to be called a boss, (laughs) but
2: technically, yes.
0: You're the overseer, and we are just the cogs that execute your vision.
2: Oh, yeah, 100%. That's exactly how work goes every day
1: so like you have to clean up your act today you can't behave how you normally behave because the boss is in
0: wow. wow wow Wow! i know you can't see it but i did put on a shirt for this interview
2: yeah i'm definitely really scary you know every morning i come in and crack things to go and have a lot of demands and deadlines and stuff so
0: i guess that, that does make me a boss so you moved here for the job what is your first impression of the bay area with your like food editor eyes yeah
2: well i moved last week or so i started working remotely before i came because of the pandemic and i came the week that everything was orange so that was Oh, (laughs) oh wow when the smoke was really bad so my first impressions were that it was smoky There's very smoky. (laughs) Uh, But from the food side, you know, I haven't eaten that much yet. I I think I'm still kind of feeling things out. I've been eating out a ton and everything is new and exciting. And I think before, so I I came from New York and uh, there is an idea of like what California eating is in New York. Like New York is a very specific version of that. And it's always light and breezy and airy and so many vegetables and avocados and the design <laughs> for these places are usually kind of beige or pastels and so I kind of have a, that vision or not vision that's the interpretation that had been offered to me in New York uh, but funnily enough when I've gone here I haven't been eating that much light stuff I've like had four different pizzas maybe <laughs> since <arriving. laughs> yeah so I think it's maybe just the nature of what's around me I'm staying in Oakland right now and the food is just not it's it's there's such a diversity of cuisines that I've already been trying and it's not necessarily this one-shot vision of California cuisine as a marketing term. Yeah. Have you eaten any avocado since you got here? I haven't eaten a single avocado. I thought they were just to hand you an avocado when you get off the plane. <laughs> that did not <laughs> happen for me.
0: Like the lays in Hawaii. Oh my exactly. gosh. Exactly. But imagine a necklace of avocados, almost like a necklace of grenades. That would be so funny. <laughs> it would be so wonderful.
1: Are these like avocados that are peeled? Or are they whole avocados that you're putting around your neck? Like how, how does this work? <laughs>
0: They're perfectly ripe, so you can just cut off the top and squeeze the Ooh. flesh right out. Oh, eat it like a Go-Gurt, like an old-school go You just squeeze it out. <laughs> Absolutely disgusting. This That's California. This is the grossest conversation we've had in
1: a while. So, Serena, one of the things that used to surprise me like when I first got here was how often people would tell me, Man, it's going to take a long time for you to understand, like, Bay Area restaurants out here. It's going to take a while for you to to kind of hit the ground running, and in certain ways, for sure. It takes some reading, talking with a lot of people to figure it out. But, um, you know, for you, for someone who has so much experience, like, covering, you know, the restaurant world, the food industry, what does it take to kind of figure out a region's dining style, especially when you have to move to that place? Like, what do you, what do, you do to figure it out?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think at a different time, I would have just been eating out all the time. And uh, I, I like to go eat out and have the dinner, have a normal dinner. And then at the end when I'm done, like really chat up the server, uh, introduce myself, not until, usually at the end, I'll introduce myself and say like, what's going on? How are things going? Um, but COVID is, is interesting obviously restaurants are open indoors. And so the ways that I maybe would have gotten to know uh, food in the past are not as accessible to me. Um, I have done some mm. outdoor dining. I, I feel like I've been more active than uh, most of the people I know as far as going out to restaurants. Um, even before I moved in New York uh, because I, w- I was leaving the city, so I was going out to eat and, and it kind of has translated to here where I'm, I'm, I feel pretty comfortable doing outdoor dining. And so I've been doing that a little bit and just kind of driving around or going to different places and um, going to new places a lot. I I don't know how, how much people are aware of how food people eat, like how restaurant reporters eat, but uh, Mm -hmm. you kind of have your list and I very rarely repeat restaurants and it's kind of going out to eat for me. I I always want to eat something delicious and I always want to fall in love when I go to a restaurant, but very, uh, and so I I don't know, kind of the test for me is I most go to new places and if it's a place I actually want to go back to, that's a big deal. You know, you, ha- you only have a limited time to eat at places and you only have three meals a day. And usually lunch, you're not really going out to eat. So um the time that I do spend going out to eat, it- it's really to look at like what are they serving? How are they serving it? What is the story they're trying to tell me? Um, what are different things that they're doing with uh their layout or the kinds of things they're serving or the way they're talking to me or uh, even like what music is playing in the bathroom and what does that say about what they're trying to do. Um, and I, and I, I love those details. I mean, I, I really miss restaurants in general and indoor dining because they, for me, it's so much, uh, so much more than the food. It's so much about being in a place and having a sense of place and understanding where, where the restaurant wants you to be and how they want to make you feel. And so I do miss that a lot. And it's a lot of how I got to know food um, in the past and was excited to do here Uh, So it's definitely very different because things are mostly takeout and delivery. Um, I still am trying to do takeout versus delivery if possible so I can see the space and see the area around it. I think the uh, neighborhoods that restaurants choose to be in always tells something about it as well and who they're trying to reach and how they're trying to be a part of their neighborhood. Restaurants and food in general is something it's such an inherently local beat to be on because Mm -hmm. most people... Don't want to read about food that they can't eat, and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like just just on food media in general. I think that the big thing is people who read it love to eat food and want to learn about food and want to, and ultimately are going to want to eat it.
1: Can you explain to people like why food coverage is important, even at the craziest craziest of times? Like I, you know, if you go back to like November of twenty sixteen, all the way to like you know the wildfires in the years after when the world felt the craziest, people still came to read good restaurant stories. And, I, and I've always been curious, you know, so why do you think that is? Like, why does that resonate with people no matter the situation? Like, why does this coverage still matter for a publication?
2: Yeah, I think that during the pandemic in particular, food is this essential service, but it's also something that has really rooted people, I think, even mm-hmm. when Everything else is kind of falling apart. A lot of other things that are going on in the world don't really make sense or the everything has been, um, everything is tossed into chaos. It's, it's, food is something that you still have to eat. You have to still have to eat your meals every day. And I think for a lot of people initially, it was, okay, well, the way we eat has changed because restaurants are closed and trying to figure out, well, how do I eat now? Grocery stores became more packed and delivery for grocery became more difficult. And so it was, it was a, a lot of food coverage. Around that point was service is, is helping people figure out how, how to navigate that because they still needed to eat, mm. but all the systems were different. So how do they, how do, how do we eat now? And so I think that part was really important. And as far as reading about restaurants, I think having dining rooms be closed For a lot of people showed them how much they cared about restaurants and Mm. how how important restaurants were to their neighborhoods and the reasons they love the place they live and what a a critical part of their lives it was um you see all these people leaving san francisco and a, a lot of these quotes are hey yeah i i part of one of the reasons i really loved living in san francisco was the restaurants and the dining scene and that's not as accessible to me anymore so they felt more comfortable leaving Uh, in part because of that and for the people who are still here it's kind of like okay well my neighborhood place i really want that to survive because i live here and once this is over i still want to go back and feeling obligations to go and buy gift cards or Contribute to a GoFundMe for their employees because they met the person. I think especially in more urban areas, there it's a way of building community is going to a restaurant and, and getting to know the, the place that you live. And so I think it really has accentuated how important it was for people because it's not as available anymore.
0: Yeah, I wanted to bring this around to a topic that we all have been working on a lot, which is how do you deliver accolades or criticism or any sort of judgment on restaurants mm. in the scene right now? You know, Justin, you worked on a story about Michelin and the mm-hmm. James Beards and how the Guide and the the Beard Awards were all kind of part of this growth of fine dining here but of course fine dining can't happen in the same way right now and then i of course have been thinking a lot about the james beards and also about the top 100 Mm -hmm. and just what the point of it all is (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm constantly wondering what the point of it all is but in particular right now this example feels so pertinent I think it might be interesting to hear Serena's take on why it matters to award restaurants in this moment. I don't know. There's a risk that any of these projects that we do might just arrive on the scene with no notice with tumbleweeds, crickets, you know? (laughs) Oh, my God. Who cares?
2: Don't don't curse us. (laughs) Knock on wood over here. Well, for me, the top one hundred is interesting because uh, in some cases it feels like an accolade, and for the restaurants, it's a it's a great honor to be on that list, and um, and and it still is, I think. But for me, the our ultimate reader is not the restaurants, but uh, people who love to eat, and the people who live in the city, and people who live in the Bay Area in general, and awards in ge- are, are, are a way to less assigned value, but give people some guidance. Food coverage is ultimately service coverage in many ways, where journalism in general is there's so much going on and our job is to help people understand the world and also help people understand how to spend their money. So in one case, the Top 100 is a great honor for a restaurant to be on, but it's also guidance for people who are eating in the Bay Area there are so many restaurants. It's your job, Soleil, to eat at all these restaurants and understand the <laughs> scene and know what the best stuff is. And so in some ways it's helping people spend their money in the best way possible. Everyone can have their favorites, but you are actually an expert in this. You are eating at the places, you're making judgment calls on it, and you know what's standing up about the rest. And it's, it's celebratory. It's, it's a way of saying, hey, these are these really great restaurants who are doing really well. If you're interested in food in the Bay Area, let this be your guide. Like if you are interested in learning about your city in this way and and learning about your neighborhood in this way, you can come here. If if you don't know where to start with spending your money, you don't know where to start on and what to eat, we can help you. And so uh, the audience to me is ultimately for us is the readers and and the people living in the area. And so that makes our top 100, I guess, and, and our role a little bit different from something like James Beard, where James Beard feels very much for the restaurants and for the industry. And um, Mm -hmm. even though it also has this double effect of being for people who are really interested in food and looking for guidance on where to go. I'm, I'm, I don't, I can't say for sure, but I bet Michelin would say the same thing that they are for people who are interested in fine dining and and a guidance Mm from them, but it has this double effect of being an accolade. So it's it's kind of a mindset in there. And I, I do think there still is a place for guidance and awards. And I don't think that awards Overall, need to be completely tossed away. I I think that in any situation where there's so much information, there's always going to be people are always going to want a way to organize it because there's just so much going on in the world. And I think that it does provide a value to think about what about pointing people in the right direction on how to spend their money and how to spend their time. And uh, a lot of the conversation around awards right now is partly in the pandemic because so many restaurants are struggling and a lot of them are, may not even survive. And so there, there are bigger issues going on right now because awards don't matter if the restaurants aren't even gonna be open to give give the awards to and then also everything going on with racial equity and uh this conversation is going on for quite a while now with the award systems from even before uh the me too movement uh because of people a lot of the people who had been um you know allegedly abusive within their kitchens and do they do these people still deserve awards and To that I say the answer is no. I think there is a way we can change the value system where we figure out who we think readers should be sending their money to and um, enjoying their products. And I think Soleil, that's something that you had already started to do last year, is stay relevant with this list and this guidance for readers that kind of doubles as this accolade. And it's thinking about, okay, well, we're gonna look at this more holistically. And it's not just about the food on the plate. And it hasn't been just about the food on the plate for many, many years. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline.
1: I'm Justin Phillips, and I'm back with our boss, Serena Dye, Senior Features Editor at the San Francisco Chronicle.
0: The question for me that I find really compelling too is how do you keep awards and accolades from being just this, this compounding of aesthetic homogeneity? You know, and maybe especially for an awards or an accolade like the top 100, which is normally led by a singular person and one brain and one set of values and aesthetic. Um, maybe that's not something you can avoid. Maybe it's just something that you acknowledge at top and let people trust you or not. I don't know. It's 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 a really complicated question because with the awards and with that sort of thing, there's an assumption of objectivity. But I think what we're realizing now is that they're not.
2: Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I mean, you think about what is trendy, and it is kind of a group of people who it, it ends up being a little bit groupthinkish on what ends up doing well and what doesn't. I I, I don't know. It's really tough to say. Um, I think that the movements to diversify who is in food media and who does deserve a voice has been really helpful for this because at the end of the day, it is all subjective. A lot of dining is subjective, and people can have their different opinions. And the more people are in it the more um and and the more that different voices are celebrated i think there can be a diversification of of what is deserving of accolades as well so, i don't know there are always things that somehow end up becoming these like food media darlings and and i've, I've obviously contributed to it having been in <laughs> media for a little bit now uh but from a personal perspective you know i'm just kind of going to a restaurant and deciding if I if I like it or not I don't know I think people have really good authenticity filters and by authenticity I mean seeing whether a place that opens and is kind of building itself for the awards versus a place mm. that feels genuine about what they're doing For example, it might be like natural wine natural wine is super hip now all the new restaurants that are, are, are somebody will have natural wines on the list. And, and part of it is because that is the way things are trending for those kind of restaurants. But I think going into a place, it doesn't take that many questions to someone to know if they are just throwing on a wine on their list and calling it organic versus they are actually really invested in the movement. And Esther's written about this a lot, where natural wine, it doesn't actually have a specific definition and it's more of an ethos of how people are making their wines and how people are, I I don't know, how, how people are treating their workers and in general, this more holistic approach to what it means to have a natural wine. And so, you know, I'll go into wine shops, for example, and ask, hey, do you have anything natural? And they're like, well, we have these like two organic wines. And... And I'll ask a very simple question about that. And they won't know the difference between an organic wine, a natural wine and a biodynamic wine. And it's like, okay, you're just putting this in here because you, people are asking for it and you don't really know the difference and you're not actually invested in the ethos and that kind of stuff is pretty easy to pick up on. And I think um, even if you're not in food media, or even if you don't know the, much about natural wine and you go into, into a place, um, I think it shows whether or not what they're doing with the menu and what they're doing with their list, it feels like authentic to what they're actually interested in versus I'm just following this trend because this is what the food media crew likes or the James Beard committee people like right now.
0: Right. Yeah. No, it reminds me of how, you know, after 32 years of being the food critic, Michael Bauer had a very recognizable aesthetic that a lot of restaurants in the Bay area, knew and they were able to anticipate. And in all the openings, they were able to say, like, "Okay, this is this is a dish that Michael will like. So let's put that on the menu, like that sort of thing. And so it's it's interesting to see that now, the kind of concrete lineage that he left just in menus and in aesthetics and just in staffing and that sort of stuff. And it's kind of humbling to think about how that might emerge based on what I do in these sorts of projects. Mm I don't even know. I, I It's it's like thinking about, like, what is my taste in partners? I have no idea. It's just all kind of random. So <laughs> we'll see what other people think.
2: Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, it's all kind of up in the air right now because of the pandemic. And I think everyone's trying to survive. So in that sense, it's that's almost kind of good. I hope everyone takes a good look at what they're doing. And I, I, I we're in a similar business in that you're not going to make that much money in journalism. So if you're going to be in it, you have to really care about what you're doing and, and really be passionate about what you're trying to say. And I think for many restaurants, it's quite similar where it's a really tough business and no one's going to, most people don't get super wealthy off of it. So like figure out what you want to, want to say. Um, but I think it's only for some of your stuff. It's some of the stuff I'm already kind of seeing. Um, and a lot of it is good. And, and there's sometimes it's this correction of, um, of like making sure people are treating their workers appropriately and having good kitchen culture and, um these kind of progressive ideas of what we want restaurants to be and I think it's really good that more people are thinking about that um there there's a performativity element to this and I think you're seeing this a lot right now online in particular of everyone is trying to be like okay well we are good I care about like Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter here's this black square mm-hmm. and it's in some ways very easy to learn the performance of saying that you're mm-hmm. doing good by people and, and that part for maybe the general public like okay well I really want something um, like it's not like organic like organic like in some sense you have to get certified right but for like tr- there's not a certification for paying your workers appropriately and that kind of stuff can be really hard to find out before saying something and the way to confirm it is you know so like you have a lot of sources like people are emailing you okay this person posted this square but actually they treated me like shit back in the mm. day and so it's not really true. So there has to be checks on that. But I, I think if, if that's going to be our value, if that's what we're saying, this is what we want the restaurants on this list to, to be, I think that's good. I do think that there's going to be this in-between stage where it's going to be hard to tell who's actually doing the thing that they're saying and who's not.
0: Right. Yeah. A lot of it is so, you know, the sort of workplace culture shifts are so slow. They're <laughs> do, you, do you fire everyone and then start over? Or do you sell their business and then... <laughs> go away. It's it's really hard to tell um, what the right thing to do is with every case. And yeah, a lot of times, too, people will ask me, you know, how do you find out about stuff? And really, it's just I find out because people tell me. It's not that much more, you know, I'm not a psychic when it comes to that sort of stuff, because I'm not in the restaurants, in the kitchens all the time. But it's really what, what I learned to appreciate was just how how much I rely on sources and just on the trust of people that I've never even met to tell me what's going on out there. And in addition to going to the restaurants and eating at them pre-pandemic and just looking and listening with my own senses, it's really, really interesting how that works. I have one last question for Serena, as if we don't have time to talk every day in life. Know, but for the sake of the podcast, I want to ask, Serena, what are you most looking forward to right now that you've entered the Bay Area and you've entered this really high profile job? What are you excited about?
2: I'm excited to start meeting people. I haven't really yet. I haven't started making connections within the world here. And I'm excited to hear what people are thinking and what they think defines California eating right now. Uh, And I'm excited to eat a lot of much better produce, I think, more practically speaking. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard rumors that the produce is better here, and I would like to check it out. Um, So that's (laughs) a big thing. Yeah, I have kind of, I've mentioned this to you guys elsewhere, uh, where I, I, I kind of feel like I'm on vacation a little bit. And I mean that in where you go to a place and everything is so fresh and so new and you're mm. kind of seeing things through different eyes and like going to new places that you haven't seen before. And in some sense, it's a sensory overload every single day of stuff that is completely new to me. And I'm excited to have that fresh start. And I haven't really been introducing myself to that many people in the industry yet. So I'm, I'm really pumped about that and just to see what people are looking for and hear from, hear from folks on what the needs are for this region.
0: Awesome. I'm so excited to finally catch a meal with you once you get settled too.
2: Oh, I'm so pumped. I'm so, Yeah, I, oh. I found a place in the Mission District and I am maybe we'll only eat tacos for the first couple months. We'll see. Tacos and burritos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that was our interview with Serena Die, our new boss, the senior features editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. And I really, I don't know, I loved the point that she made about how we're sort of at least when she got here she realized that we were all sort of out of practice about writing about how food is yummy <laughs> just because like right. like the whole world was, you know, there was just so much happening and we were just talking about just big big things and getting really granular about like what makes a sandwich good was just like not part of our thing for a second.
1: No, it's it's weird to realize you haven't exercised that muscle in a while. With food coverage, you end up writing about, you know, food is, food is the the basis, like the, the foundation topic. But from there, you can spiral into politics, you can spiral into race. There's just so, you know, access, there's just so many things that you can write about on top of food. And I think, you know, there's amazing food writing done in these categories. And we did that, like, for the longest, we kind of like, pursued these different avenues to tell these food related stories. And I know for me, especially, like, There was like a story a while back about Wagyu that I had to write. And uh, after having done so many different kinds of like food industry stories about just like workforce and things like that, I was like, oh, man, I need to actually describe what it was like to eat this stuff. (laughs) And it was like I hadn't done that specifically, like with a concerted effort in so long that it's weird as a food writer that you have to circle back to it. So it's both like a good thing. And a bad thing, you know, because we were doing good work in other areas. And then, you know, but you got to keep all the muscles strong. And Serena is definitely like bringing up something great, you know. I think
0: the best part about that emphasis, too, is that it brings poetry back into the writing. And I, to clarify, I hate poetry. I do not read poetry. I don't like doing it. But I also find a lot of inspiration (laughs) in it as well. I don't know why. I just really like other things. (laughs) Yes. No offense to poets. I appreciate you. Yeah. So it's like how musicals work. You know what I mean? Like the song is often an interruption into the action or like the narrative, but like it is this moment of beauty that you're allowed to have in this thing, that in some ways does forward the story but in a way that's more meandering or more like indulgent and i find that describing food can be a lot like that as well where you just spend maybe a paragraph or two just talking about how something smells and tastes and feels and how it makes you feel and you know the best way to eat it or whatever i think that is for us an indulgence that other features writers don't often get
1: and that exploration can be really fun too because those descriptions are incredibly individual, you know. No two people are going to sit down and write, at least for the most part. If you told them to write, a, you know, write me a paragraph describing, you know, the first bite of this of this sandwich or something. What gets produced out of that is going to be so different between two people, and that's kind of what I really like because it's like a it's like a fingerprint, basically. Like the description that you use for what you eat, how you experience a meal is a uh, You know, it's very particular to the writer, and it's always fun to see those things.
0: Yeah, I know. It helps me remember why I like it in the first place, you know?
1: So speaking of describing food, here's our what is this nonsense segment that really is going to get granular about that one thing.
0: What? What? Is. What is this? What is this nonsense?
1: I know someone, you, who (laughs) ate a chicken sandwich.
0: Yeah i wrote this whole article about one sandwich which is also just it 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 fits the definition of indulgent right so it was for this newsletter by curious that i write and i saw adam musa who does social media for eater post this chicken sandwich with a kind of gnarled foot sticking out of it and i was like what is that and he made a joke about the sandwich being gay which i appreciate i love that And then I realized it's from a San Francisco restaurant called Birdsong, which spun off Bird Box as its casual concept during the pandemic, which they were planning to do anyway. And I'd, I'd heard they were doing chicken sandwiches, but I did not realize there was a foot involved. So obviously I wanted to buy it so I could touch it. I just really wanted to touch the foot end and 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 then i wrote this whole thing about it of course i ordered it the same day and it was very inspiring i just like looked at the sandwich and just wrote about it it was funny because it, it made me think of so many images it made me think of baba yaga's house um which is you know baba yaga is like the russian witch who lives in this house with chicken feet and she runs around the forest with it it made me think about vor which is this offshoot of it's like this porny thing where the the fetish is like over being eaten (laughs) and it it made me think of that and it made me think of just how so many restaurants and like people who care about food are trying to get eaters especially meat eaters to see the whole creature and like to understand like where food comes from Right, like that's also part of it yeah and then like there are other things that are really funny about it where you get instructions because the sandwich comes unassembled and you have to like put it together and in the instructions it refers to Claude the claw like the sandwich's foot has a name which is Claude <laughs> oh my God. and I was like well I mean and I, I make this very silly joke in the newsletter but I just say like I don't know anyone who has a foot who has a name you know the chicken doesn't have a name but the foot <laughs> has a name I think that's just totally hilarious. Right. <laughs> Like, does your foot have a
1: name? I do not have a name for my foot. No.
0: <laughs> if it had a name, what would it be?
1: I mean, now I can't stop thinking of Claude. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just it. But you know what, though? What what this uh, what this sandwich kind of reminds me of is how far the chicken foot has come. Because I remember as a kid, like growing up, uh, my parents would go to the store down south called Jitney Jungle. Anyone who it's just country as hell. <laughs> But uh they used to have like these like red tinted jars on these shelves of like pig's feed and chicken feed yeah. you can use them for uh-huh. you know, like whatever. Yeah, like whatever you want to use them for. And I remember like they were they were inexpensive at the time. Um, but you know, everything is the same thing, like you used to be able to buy oxtails for cheap, but you can't now. But I just remember like being a kid and you know, my grandparents or my parents getting those for whatever they were going to use them for. I'd be like, oh, man, like, why? I got to, you know, I got to grab that thing. If I had to explain to my grandfather now, like, you had to cut, co- like, if he came to San Francisco, I could get him a chicken sandwich with the foot attached that would come with dis- instructions for how to assemble. I'm pretty sure his uh, his brain would melt. Mm. It's just it's just crazy to think about. Yeah.
0: Oh, God. (laughs) And it's funny because, you know, people, like you said, people eat chicken feet all the time. And it's just funny to see it as essentially a garnish because it's a little too fried to really enjoy. You can munch on it, but it's not there's not a lot going on there. Did you give it a did you give it a couple of chews? I gave it a little nibble. um, But it's important (laughs) to highlight the fact that I did shake hands with the sandwich before I ate it. (laughs) So that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to our boss, Serena Dye, for being in conversation with us. You can read the transcript of our interview with Serena at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And don't miss the top 87 at sfchronicle.com slash top restaurants.
1: And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me Solejo on Twitter at h o o l e i l,
1: and me Justin Phillips at just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com/pod.